Our text this morning is Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 7, but let's read for context again from the beginning of this glorious chapter. Romans 8, starting in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we worship you this morning. We thank you, Lord, for uh, this time to read your word, to sing praise, to lift up our voices to you in song and in prayer, asking that you would do what only you can do. Speak to our hearts. Change us from within. Help us, Lord, to become more like your Son, glorious as you are, that we might bring you glory that we might boast in Jesus Christ and not in ourselves. We ask this for your name's sake. Amen. Please be seated. Romans 8 has been really a, a challenging study, but a very uh, rewarding one, I think, as we understand the mind of the Lord with regard to His salvation and specifically the work of His Holy Spirit, the blessed third person of the Trinity, who applies the work of redemption, an eternal work that God has purposed in His mind in eternity. In eternity. And there's no past in eternity. There's no present or future. It's just in eternity, outside of time. But has brought to us in space and time by the application of His blessed Holy Spirit who connects us with that glorious work that Christ did for us in space and time. And so we've been seeing really one bite at a time, and, and I'm taking this deliberately a little more slowly in this section because each verse is so packed with theology. I want to make sure that we understand, that we revel in, that we are glorying in what the Lord has for us in these texts. So we started by really understanding that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who have been united with Christ spiritually, uh, grafted into Him is another way that it's put in the Scripture in Romans chapter 6, planted together with Him. This is a work that God the Spirit has done for us. He has joined us to the Lord Jesus Christ, so now our identity is found in Him and not separate from Him. This is a work of the Spirit of God. In fact, the way he puts it is the predominant governing power, the greater power of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, in verse 2, has made me free, has delivered me from the power, the governing rule of sin and death, which used to govern you and me, which we were bound by, which we were slave to. The Spirit of God has set us free by uniting us with Christ and His work of redemption so that we can look at this gospel message, this good news that we have for us really summarized well in verse 3, that what we couldn't do, God did for us. That He sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and on account of sin, as a perfect substitutionary sacrifice for sin. 
A, a perfect man who could stand in our place because he fully represents us. And yet he doesn't have any sin of his own to pay for, so he is eminently qualified to take upon himself the sins of the world, the sins of all his elect of all time. And in his body, on that tree, he condemned the very thing that condemned us, sin. That thing which kept us under the wrath of God, which burns against all sinners and all sin. The very thing that condemns and consigns sinners to an eternity of hellfire. That has been turned away from us. That has been averted from us completely by this gracious work of redemption that Jesus has done for us on that tree at Calvary and that the Spirit has mystically, wonderfully united us to in Christ. He condemns sin in the flesh. But he didn't only do that, that our sins would be forgiven and that we could go back to living the life that we were living before. He did that in order that we would be sanctified, that we would be set apart more and more from our sin in practice. The way he puts it is, verse 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, might be filled, in up, filled up in us progressively. That's the idea, that we for the first time now have the ability to keep God's law as He intended, which is to say, to keep the spirit of the law. Not just the letter, not just what the words say, but the spirit behind the letter, which can only be done by those who are empowered by the Spirit of God, who are made alive because they're indwelt by the Spirit of God. And it's in those people that God's very character, His righteousness, is being fulfilled we are becoming more like Him and less like ourselves as a result of this work of redemption. And then we saw in verse 5 something about the nature of these two kinds of people that God is describing in, in the world. It, really, there's only two kinds of people that He's concerned with. And I, I want you to see this and maybe it's been obvious as we've been going through this these many weeks, there's those who are in the flesh and those who are in the Spirit. The Lord is not looking upon those who have different ethnicities as a distinction. He doesn't look upon those who have different socioeconomic status as a distinguishing mark. He doesn't look upon gender as a distinguishing mark. In terms of your standing, you are either in the flesh or in the Spirit. One or the other. There is no in-between. That is the great distinguisher that God cares for. And He says those who are fleshly, whose nature is flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. They muse on the things of the flesh. They're absorbed with, they, their hearts are drawn to the things of the flesh, the things of this earth. And those who are according to the Spirit, meaning if your nature is of the Spirit because you've been born again by the Spirit of God, then your mindedness is toward the things of the Spirit. Your mindedness informs who you are. The things that you think about as the pattern of your life, what you're drawn to, the things that you love when, when no one else is looking and there's no pressure on you. Are your hearts drawn upward to the Lord with your mindedness, or are they drawn downward to the things of this earth? Those who are of the Spirit have a spring or a fountain that is within their hearts, within their souls, which is the Holy Spirit Himself. And He is the one who is bubbling and active and causing our thoughts to rise to the Lord Jesus Christ and to find our greatest satisfaction and delight in Him. That's not to say that our thoughts are always directed upward, but as the general trajectory and pattern of the life. That is what's true of the Christian. Your mindedness tells you who you are. And then we saw last week in verse 6, the root cause for why the heart is inclined to either the things of the flesh or the things of the Spirit. What is that root cause? Well, the root cause is that one group of people have a status or a state which is called death, Separation from God, spiritually. And another group is life and peace. 
life and peace. That's the reason the heart is drawn one way or the other. You've either, you're either in a state of death separated from God, don't have an interest in or care for the things of God, or you love God and His righteousness, and you have been brought to life. What does that mean? It means that you've entered into the knowledge of God. That's really what we saw, that those who have been brought to life spiritually recognize God for who He is, and He has revealed Himself in the person of His Son only, the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who recognize that Christ is Lord and God have entered into life. They are alive. They're evidencing it by their belief. And those who have entered into life have received the message of peace. The only message that brings reconciliation between holy God and sinful man who otherwise is under his wrath and alienated from him. That message of peace that we read in verse 3 of chapter 8, for what the law could not do because it was weak through the flesh, our flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and on account of sin, for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. We embrace that. We stake our eternities on that. We have been brought into life and peace. But Paul is not done with this contrast of the flesh and the spirit. That brings us this morning to verse 7. And let's look at this together. Verse 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God... For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Paul is still talking about the mind of the flesh here in verse 7. He's been talking about it since verse 5 and verse 6. So he's continuing with the same thought. The New King James says carnal mind, but really the translation in Greek is the mind of the flesh. So that's what we're talking about. And if you've not been with us in this series, just as a quick refresher, the flesh is a word which refers to our fallen humanity. It's a word that refers to our sinful natures in Adam. The part of us that is corrupted by sin, which is really all of us. The body, not just the physical members of the body, but the immaterial, non-physical members of the body, like your mind, your thought, your affection, your heart, what we call the heart, and your will, your desires, the All of that is corrupted at the fall. That's the idea of total depravity. You may not be as bad as you possibly can be when comparing yourself with other people, but you're as bad off because every part of you is corrupted by the fall and you are guilty before God apart from Christ. That's the flesh. And this flesh has a mind. It has a mind. It has thoughts and patterns of thought that are all corrupted by sin so that they cannot function properly anymore in a spiritual sense. And Paul says this, because, really, on account of or for this reason, the mind of the flesh is enmity against God. For what reason? Well, for the reason he gave in verse 6, that the mind of the flesh is death, Because the mind of the flesh is separated from God, alienated from God, for that reason, the mind is enmity against God or toward God. Not enemy, but enmity. It's a strange word. We don't really use it in our modern English. But I I put it on the title and I I wanted to bring it to your attention because it, it catches the ear once you hear it and you learn what it means. Enmity is the Greek word that means hatred. It means hostility. It's actually a noun. He's not talking about the adjective, in other words, hateful or hostile, but he says the mind of the flesh is hostility itself. It's a word that describes more than just acts of hostility. It's a word that describes a state of being, a nature that is constantly in a state of war against or toward God. The mind of the flesh, in other words, is opposed to God. It stands in opposition to all that he is and all that he does, as he's revealed it in Scripture. This state of opposition is something that, by definition, never changes. So this mind of the flesh is consigned to always be in opposition to God. 
You could say that the natural mind, it's another way of calling it the mind of the flesh, the natural mind of a person is in a state of constant warfare with God, and the reason is because it's spiritually separated from God. It's dead. So Paul is really contrasting here the mind of the flesh with the mind of the spirit. The mind of the spirit is life and peace, as we saw last week. But the mind of the flesh is death and warfare at work in the heart of the unbeliever. I want you to see that opposition to God stems from our alienation from God. Opposition to God stems from, is rooted in, starts with alienation from God. And when did this warfare begin? Well, we saw last week that it began in the garden, and we looked at that. So I would commend last week's message if you want to catch up on that. We we looked at something of the pathology of this mind of the flesh and how it operates. We saw that really that mind is one that always turns away from God and not to God. When it sins, it tries to deal with its own sin by sowing fig leaves and hiding from God rather than coming to the light of God and confessing its sin. It will not confess its sin. It will always point the finger of blame at somebody else in order to justify itself. That's this mind of death, a mind of the flesh. So it's a warfare against the Lord. And it began in the garden, but it also begins for each one of us in our stories, even before we're born. King David said in Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, That means sin. And in sin, my mother conceived me. He's not talking about his mom being in sin, conceiving him in sin as if the sin is hers. He's describing that he was born in a state of sin, a state of hostility or animosity toward God. And that happened from the time he was in the womb, even before he was born, birthed. You see, we don't become sinners because we practice sin We practice sin because our nature is that we're sinners. So what Paul is doing here from verses 5 to 7, as I see it, is he's really ratcheting up the tension. He's he's saying that the mind of flesh is not only death, meaning separation from God, but it's hostility toward God. The natural mind is not only separated from the life of God, but it's an active enemy to God. That's very serious. This is not the case of somebody who has fallen out of the boat and become separated from the boat, who is actively looking for a life preserver to get back into the boat. That could be thought of as an accident with good intent to get back into the boat. No, this is a a person who has taken his father's inheritance, he's turned his back on his father, and he's effectively said, I wish you were dead, I want nothing more to do with you. And he goes about to live his own life separate from his father. No intention of returning. This is describing the worst kind of crime against God with evil intent. Job, when he was describing the wicked in chapter 21, verse 14 of his book, the book about him, he said this, Yet they say to God, depart from us. For we do not desire the knowledge of your ways. This is what the wicked say. Depart from us, for we do not desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we have if we pray to him? See, the mind of the flesh hates God. He doesn't want God in any of his thoughts. He may not say that verbally, openly, but he has this defiance in his heart. Actually, this person may say all the right things about God with his mouth. He may say that he loves God and loves his ways, wants to serve him, prays to him even. But in works, in his life, in the pattern of his life, he denies God. That's what Paul said to Titus in chapter 1, verse 16. They profess to know God with their mouth, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Oh yes, he may contemplate the things of God for a time, even on a regular basis, like this, coming to church once a week, 
But then he quickly reverts in his thinking to the things of this world, which really is what he loves. He's like the people that Ezekiel was warned about in his day. In Ezekiel 33, verse 30, As for you, son of man, this is the Lord speaking to Ezekiel, who is called son of man. The children of your people are talking about you beside the walls and in the doors of the houses. And they speak to one another, everyone saying to his brother, Please, come and hear what the word of the Lord is. Come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. So they come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people. And they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love but their hearts pursue their own gain. There it is. He says, indeed, you are to them, Ezekiel, you are to this group as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument, for they hear your words, but they do not do them. There are people who love the the sound or the event of preaching. They come because they can appreciate what that looks like. There's something that's desirable about that, but they hate its content. They insist on the gospel being preached, and yet they themselves do not believe the gospel. Why? Because they're at war with God in their minds. Their mind is in a state of hostility toward God. Yes, you may say the right thing with your mouth, but the heart rejects the Lord. It's the heart that says, I do not desire the knowledge of your ways. And why? Because this person truly sees no benefit to serving the Lord. There's nothing desirable there for them. And they demonstrate it, maybe not openly, but certainly through apathy, through a lack of interest in the things of God. Now, someone listening to this might think, I've never been at war with God as far as I know. I may not have served Him as I ought, but I've never been His enemy or warred with Him. And so I think it behooves ourselves ourselves to ask this question, what does this warfare look like from Scripture? And how would you know if you're one who who is at war with God? How would you know that you're such a person who wars with God? I want to give you four things this morning to consider about this warfare, this enmity with God. These are tests to know if you are still at war with God, right? Because all of us have been at war since the womb. How do we know if we're still at war with God? Well, here's the first point. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We went through this, um, really, I think almost exactly two years ago, and I know that there are many of you who were not here at that time, so I think it a good time to cover this ground again. Um, in Romans chapter 1, we have a judicial abandonment that God has toward those who reject Him. Romans 1 teaches that God gives people who reject Him over to what's called a debased mind. That's a mind that is disapproved by God. It's cursed by God. It's not able to function spiritually. It's not able to understand spiritual truth. It has no appreciation for spiritual truth. And the progression has been that although God has revealed himself to every person in this world through creation, all are suppressors of the truth. That's our response because of our sinful nature to divine light. We suppress the truth. We refuse to glorify Him. We fashion our own idea of who God is, which is a corrupted idea and a corrupt image. We exchange the truth of God for the lie, and we worship the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. So God gives humanity over to the lusts of their own sinful hearts to do what He says are the things that are not proper, the things that are not fitting. Look at verse 28 with me. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting or proper. And what are the characteristics of a debased mind? 
Well, there's a laundry list here, and I, I just want to go through them briefly with you because it's important with regard to our discussion of hatred toward God, enmity with God. He says, being filled with all, that means with every form of unrighteousness. Unrighteousness is those who love to break God's law. They have no regard for it. With wickedness, that describes people who delight in doing what is wrong, evil behavior. Covetousness, that's greediness. People who are always overreaching, always craving for more, no matter how it's obtained. Maliciousness is general badness. And, and this is now where we get into relationship with others. This is a desire to harm or injure others. Maliciousness. Full of envy. Here's another attitude toward others. Ill will toward others. Not wanting others to have what they have. Murder. Well, we know that murder is not just the outward act of taking someone's life, but it's an attitude of the heart towards someone else that begins as hatred in the heart. Hatred. Strife is quarrelsomeness. Those who are belligerent with others, they love to argue for the sake of arguing. Deceit is cunning. Those who like to deceive others for personal gain. Evil-mindedness is malice or spite. Again, a desire to harm others. Whisperers, that's a word for gossips, those who speak behind others' backs. They won't say it publicly, but they have no problem spreading the word quietly. Backbiters do what gossips do in secret, they do openly. They do openly. They have no problem just slandering and speaking badly about other people. And then in this grouping, he has haters of God. Haters of God. Keep going with me. Violent, that's excessive pride to treat others with contempt, to treat others as if I'm the only important person. Proud, those who want to outshine others, who are always promoting themselves and seek to be the preeminent one. Boasters are people who constantly brag about themselves to others. Inventors of evil things are those who delight in inventing new forms of evil, new forms of hurting other people. Disobedient to parents, that's pretty self-explanatory. Those who are not compliant toward others where others are your parents. Undiscerning is people who are senseless. You can present them with the truth and they will not understand it. Untrustworthy are people who are covenant breakers. They habitually break the confidence of others. Unloving is those who don't have natural affection. They're, they're cold-hearted toward other people. And unmerciful is without pity toward others. They can see need and they can willingly turn a blind eye toward that need. These are all characteristics of the debased mind. And I want you to notice within that group, Paul places haters of God. Alongside with those who have pride, gossip, quarrelsomeness, envy, and disobedience to parents. Why does he do that? Because those who hate God are also the same people who practice these other things. They're not separate from this list. They are those who also practice these things in the list. And what are these other things? Well, these are really acts of war against other people. Those other people might be family members, they might be friends, they might be co-workers, bosses, church members. It all begins in the mind and the heart before these actions are ever expressed outwardly. This is part of the mind of the flesh. In other words, you know you're at war with God by looking at the attitude of your heart toward other people. That's what he's saying. You know you're at war with God by your attitude toward other people. If you have a desire to outshine everyone else, to boast in your accomplishments, to treat others with contempt, then your pride, boasting, and violence are indicators that you are a hater of God. If you can speak evil about others openly or behind their backs then backbiting and whispering indicates that you are a hater of God. If you're somebody who disobeys your parents as the pattern of your life, you show that you are a hater of God. Those who war with others in the mind are also at war with God in the mind. They go hand in hand. This is what Paul has in mind when he speaks of enmity, the state of hostility toward God. Listen to how the Apostle John puts it in his first epistle, 1 John 4, verse 10. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, 
How can he love God whom he's not seen? The answer is he can't. It's impossible. He hates God. And in our call to worship this morning, Titus chapter 3, that was a description of the natural man before the new birth comes to him. Paul says, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. There's a description of the natural man. Hateful and hating one another. Hateful to God and hateful to men. That's the natural disposition of the mind of the flesh. That's how he lives. That's what you could call his walk, his pattern of life. And why does he do this? Because Paul says he's foolish, he's disobedient, and he's deceived. He's been given over to a debased mind. He's truly deceived. He doesn't understand what he's doing. I mean, think about this with me just for a moment. Why would anyone hate and set themselves against the God of heaven and earth who is all delight, who is all wonderful and glorious and the source of all life and peace? Why would anyone in their right mind set themselves against him? Well, they wouldn't in their right mind. Or why would someone set themselves against the God who has the power not only to kill the body, but to cast body and soul in hell forever? Who can prevail against the Lord? Who would even try who was in their right mind? And the only answer is this. This is the debased mind. This is an evidence of somebody who is under the wrath of God. Warfare with God is the result of being under the wrath of God. Somebody who is in their right mind would never war with God. This is not rational, but this is an important commentary on the nature of sin. Sin is not rational. Sin leads people to prefer lies even when plain truth is set before them because they don't want the alternative. They don't want the truth. They don't want the light to expose their dark hearts So they'd rather remain in darkness. So what's the first evidence that you're still at war with God? Well, you know that you're at war with God if you're at war with other people, according to that list that we just looked at in Romans 1. Secondly, you know you're at war with God if you love the world. If you love the world. James chapter 4, verse 4. Adulterers and adulteresses. James is speaking to the visible church. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God, is hostility toward God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James is speaking to professing Christians who say that they are faithful to God, but who really are faithful to the world, who love the world. That's why he calls them adulterers and adulteresses, spiritually. They're unfaithful to the one they proclaim to be faithful to. He says, this person who loves the world makes himself an enemy of God. He sets himself up as an enemy of God. These two are mutually exclusive things. You cannot love the world and love God. John said it this way in 1 John 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. This world system that we live in is not of God. It has been corrupted by sin. It's in the sway of the devil, the control of the devil by the permission of God. It promotes glory without needing to die to self. It promotes boasting in human accomplishment and in the flesh and not in God. It's an enemy to God in every respect. It's at enmity with God. That's exactly why the Lord tells the church, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your 
mind, right? That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God, that we have the mind of Christ, not the will of the world, not the mind of the world, the mind that, we, that used to dominate us. That has to die. The mind of Christ must predominate. Matthew Henry said this in his commentary about these verses, which I thought was really helpful. He said, quote, A man may have a competent portion of the good things of this life, <clears throat> and yet may keep himself in the love of God. But he who sets his heart upon the world, who places his happiness in it, and will conform himself to it, and do anything rather than lose its friendship, he is an enemy to God. It is constructive treason and rebellion against God to set the world upon his throne in our hearts. Whosoever, therefore, is the friend of the world is the enemy of God. He who will act upon this principle to keep the smiles of the world and to have its continual friendship cannot but show himself in spirit and in his actions too an enemy of God. You cannot serve God in mammon or money. Our allegiance is either to the Lord or to this world and this world's system, which is corrupted and fallen. So, in the second place, you know you're at war with God if you're in love with this world. If your heart is drawn to the things of this world, if you want the gratification that this world can provide, and you find your greatest joy in that, you know you're at war with God. Thirdly, you know you're at war with God if you love yourself. 2 Timothy chapter 3, listen to verses 1 through 5. Paul says, But knowing this, that in the last days perilous times will come. How does he describe these perilous times? For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, meaning arrogant, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. So you, I think, hear a lot of similarity between this list and 2 Timothy chapter 3, and the list we went through in Romans chapter 1, right? There's a lot of overlap there. In Romans chapter 1, disobedient to parents describes those who are haters of God. Here, lovers of self describes those who are haters of God. <clears throat> the wicked are lovers of self rather than lovers of God. Again, mutually exclusive. If you love the world, you don't love God. If you love yourself, you don't love God. <clears throat> Why would loving self be a sin? Well, if we go back to our purpose, why we were created, were we created for ourselves? <laughs> Man was created for one purpose, and that was to love God, to glorify Him, and to enjoy Him forever. We as the creature were created for the pleasure of the Creator, not for ourselves. And this really might be one of the hardest things for the natural person, the person who is still in the flesh, to hear about himself. And it's this. It's open rebellion. It's an act of war against God to live for yourself and for your pleasures rather than for God and for his pleasures. That's rebellion in God's mind. The creature was made for the pleasure of the creator. So, if you love self, you're going against your purpose that God designed for you. Secondly, if you love yourself, you're really loving what's been corrupted by sin. What you're saying is that your heart delights in sin because it delights in self, and self is corrupted by sin. See, lovers of God are haters of self, meaning haters of their own sin, haters of their own flesh. What we've been talking about really in Romans 7 toward the end. This wretched man theology where Paul is made aware of his sin by the word of God, by the commandment coming to him in power, and increasingly he as the mature apostle is able to say, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He longs to be free of the body of death 
because he hates his life in the flesh. Jesus said it this way in John 12, 25. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So you know that you're at war with God if you love self. If you love your life in this world and all that the world has to offer, it's a a very stark testimony that you still are at war with God. Fourthly, and last, finally, you know that you're at war with God if you don't love the Lord Jesus Christ. That may seem obvious, but I want to peel this back with you a little bit because there's some surprises here. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22. Paul says this, If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. That word means damned. Damned. O Lord, come, anathema, excuse me, uh, maranatha, come, Lord. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, that means if anyone does not welcome him, if anyone does not befriend him, if anyone does not embrace him affectionately, then he is cursed, he is damned. He's at war with God. To not receive the Lord Jesus Christ means to not receive him as he's been revealed in Scripture. This is very important. John actually tells us what it means to receive Christ in his gospel in John 1, 11 through 13. Listen to this. He says, he came to his own. This is referring to Jesus coming to his own, there means humanity, to the realm of mankind. And his own, he now zooms in and he's talking about the Jews specifically, to his own people, his own ethnicity. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So, two things here. He's not saying that if you receive him, then you will become a child of God. This is not prescriptive. This is descriptive. He's saying those who have become children of God receive him. That's an evidence that you are a child of God. You receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does that mean? It means, according to John, that you believe in his name. You believe in his name. That means that you embrace the whole truth of who he is, his identity as he's been revealed, and his work, everything that he's done. That's what it means to believe in his name, to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, how many self-professing evangelicals, I put that word in air quotes, today, do not love the Lord Jesus Christ because they don't receive him by believing in his name the way we just described. There was a, um, a report that was done last year, this is a year old now, called State of Theology. It was published by Lifeway Publishers and uh, Ligonier Ministries. It was a joint effort. Some of you may have seen that report. I, I just pulled a couple of stats from that report, which are frankly pretty shocking because it deals with questions about the faith and how people respond. And they have two categories of respondents they have those who are just adults who respond and those who call themselves evangelicals. The first question, or one of the questions, the first of the two that I wanted to share with you is this. Do you agree with the statement, Jesus was a great teacher, but he is not God? How many agree with that statement? And it was the evangelical respondents who said, we agree with that statement. 43% agreed. Almost half. Believe that Jesus is a great teacher, but not God. Another question was, do you believe that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, but also Judaism and Islam? In other words, is it just faith that matters, or is it the kind of faith that matters? 56% of evangelicals said they believe that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 56%? That is a rejection of Jesus' own claim that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but by him. 
That's an outright denial of who Jesus is and what he came to do. The people who respond that way do not receive him, and they are at war with God. Every false notion of who Jesus is and what his work is, is in fact held by people who are at war with God. If your idea of Christianity is that Jesus was just a good teacher, a moral man, and somebody to follow as an example, that we can be righteous enough just by copying his good life, and there's many who believe that, you hate Christ and you hate God. If you can look to Jesus Christ only as an example of a righteous man, but you do not accept the truth that Jesus came to die for sinners who are dead in their trespasses and sins, who are enemies of God, who have no ability to do any good spiritually, and who have no ability to save themselves, if you believe that, you are an enemy of God's. You hate the true Jesus Christ. If you can come to the knowledge of Christ as one comes to a buffet and pick out the things that you like, his love, his mercy, his kindness, his forgiveness, but you pass over the things that you don't care for, like his wrath against sin, his blood atonement for sinners, and the judgment to come, then you don't receive him and you actually hate him. Only those who receive all of Christ, I'm being emphatic about this for a reason, all, only those who receive all of him love Jesus Christ. Anything less than fully embracing him is to reject him and to hate him in terms of Scripture categories. And those who don't obey Christ also evidence that they don't love him, right? No matter what they say. Because the Lord himself said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So how do you know you're at war with God? Well, you know you're at war with God still if you war with other people in your mind, in your hearts, and physically, obviously. If you love the world and all it has to offer, if you love yourself and you love your life in this world, and you don't love Christ as the Scripture defines it, you don't receive Him, then you're at war with God. And brothers and sisters, this is a warfare that takes place in the mind, right? Because Paul said, the mind of the flesh is hostility, is open warfare against God. It's the mind. That's where this takes place. So this is a war that has to do with ideas, with thoughts, with philosophies that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You're probably familiar with what I'm quoting from here. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Either turn with me or listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I just want to read verses 3 through 6. Paul says this, For though we walk in the flesh, and by that he doesn't mean that he's uh, in the flesh, meaning dominated by the flesh, but that he's still in the body, this tent. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, that means fleshly or earthly, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Paul is describing spiritual warfare here. And this warfare is not fought with weapons that are physical, that are of this earth. It's fought with spiritual weapons. And he describes it in these three ways. It's the pulling down of strongholds. That's the word that refers to castles or fortresses. He says it's casting down arguments, logismos, those are reasonings. We're talking about imaginations, philosophies, speculations, ideas of the mind. And the third is every high thing. That's a word that refers to high defensive walls that would surround a city. So here are the three things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. This, in other words, is a battle between truth and error with respect to the knowledge of God. And specifically about who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do. That's where the the focus is here. And it's the fleshly people, the people who have the mind of the flesh, who buy into 
and lift up their own ideas about who Jesus is, which are false. And what they do is they, in Paul's language, they surround themselves with those philosophies like high walls surround a castle and they fortify themselves inside these fortresses of lies. And that's where they remain. They're prisoner inside their own castles. This is what it means to be at war with God. To reject the truth of God as he has revealed it. These people will not receive the truth. They've enclosed themselves in their own fortresses of lies. And there's nothing in the realm of the flesh that can bring down those walls, brothers and sisters. There's no wisdom of men. There's no psychology. There's no self-helps that can take these walls down. The only thing that can bring down the castle and its surrounding walls of unbelief is spiritual weapons. Spiritual weapons. Think about Israel when they were marching around the walls of Jericho. Right? There were instructions as to how they were to march. The men of war were to march around this city once a day for six days. And then on the seventh day, they were to march around the city seven times. The priests blew their trumpets. Seven priests blew their trumpets. The people were all to shout at the same time as the trumpets were blasting. And the walls came tumbling down. What was it that made the walls come down? Was it the people marching around? Or was it the ark of God, which represents the presence of God and the word of God, which was contained in that ark, which were encircling these walls again and again? And by the word of God and his power, those walls came down. You see, the weapons of our warfare are mighty to the tearing down of these castles and walls. And that weapon that we have is called the Word of God. Hebrews, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 10, verse 17. It was quoted this morning by one of our brothers. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. It's only the Word of God which is described as the sword of the Spirit that can break down the barriers of unbelief and give us faith so that we embrace God's revelation of who he is in Christ. Everyone else remains fortified in their own walls of unbelief. So we've, I think, started to answer this question of why the mind of the flesh is at war with God. I think we saw that pretty clearly in Romans chapter 1. It's a debased mind. It's an evidence of being under the wrath of God. But here's how Paul puts it in Romans 8, verse 7. He says, For it, referring to this mind of the flesh, is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. And when he talks about the law of God there, he's referring to the entire word of God. The natural mind is not subject to, that's really a military term, that means to come into line under the authority of another. The natural mind does not align itself with, does not submit to the Word of God in any respect. And Paul actually uses the passive voice, meaning not that the mind doesn't subject itself, but it is not subject to the Word of God. And then he explains the reason why. Very simply this, neither indeed can it be. The Greek says, for neither is there power to do so. No power. No dynamite is the word he uses in Greek. Jeremiah 13, 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change its spots? That's a rhetorical question. Of course not. Neither can you who are accustomed to doing evil do good or do what is right. If your nature is evil, all you can do is evil. If your nature is good, you can do what is right. No, there's no power in this mind of the flesh to do what is right, to submit itself to the Word of God. It will not receive the truth. And it's, it's not that it, it's not been presented clearly enough with the gospel. Not that somebody just didn't hit all the right points, and so that's why the person didn't believe. No. It's not that because the person hasn't been adequately convinced by looking at all the arguments. It's that they're not able. They, there's no power to believe the truth in ourselves, naturally. This is how the Lord Jesus Christ put it. And these, these are hard truths, but these are wonderful truths for those who have ears to hear. In John chapter 8, when Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, 
who said that they believed in him but actually didn't. He says this starting in verse 42, John 8, 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Here we go. Why is it that you can't understand the word of God? Because you are not able to listen to my word. No power. Here's the reason. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own, his own resources. For he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why don't you believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. Very sobering words. You can't hear and understand. I mean, yes, they heard the words, but they didn't understand his meaning because they couldn't hear. Their hearts were hardened. Their father is the devil, and they are acting just like the devil. They love the lies because their father is the father of lies. Only those who are born of God who belong to him, who are Jesus' sheep in the language of John 10, are those who can hear his voice, recognize him as the good shepherd, the great shepherd, and follow him. Everyone else may say that they believe and recognize him, but they do not embrace him. They do not follow him. The natural mind, loved ones, here's what Paul's saying. It will never bow to God, to his desires, to his well, to his word. It will never bow in belief. It is sold under sin. It is given over to practicing sin. This is a mind that is really irreconcilable with God. And I know we mentioned that last week. This is where this comes from. This mind will forever be at enmity with God. This mind can't be reconciled, but the good news is that sinners can be reconciled to God. Sinners can be reconciled. And how does he do that? He gives us a new mind. He, he causes us to be born again. He puts a new heart in us. And again, the heart in Scripture embodies the idea of the mind as well as the affections and the will. All of that is now new for the Christian. And the way the Lord describes it in his new covenant is this. This is Hebrews 8 verse 10, quoting Jeremiah 31. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, with the true people of God. The spiritual Israel, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. How is it that anyone can ever come to a point where they are subject to the law of God? God must give them a new heart and write his very law on their hearts. The place of their they're caring, where they care most. That's where God puts his law in us. And that's how we become subject to the law of God. Everyone else who has a heart of stone, they're not subject. Those words are not etched on their heart. Some might wonder if Christians ever war with God. Um, I think it's a fair question, but... And I think we can say it this way. There are times when we do have hateful thoughts toward God. That's just called sin. When we are disobedient, when we are rebellious. But loved ones, we are no longer in this state of war with him. We've been removed from that. Um, we now, really to the contrary, love him. We love his word. We love righteousness. We see our sin for what it is and we hate it and we repent from it and we turn to the Lord Jesus as he's been revealed in scripture and to his perfect work and we embrace him and all that he is. We want to obey the law of God. In fact, we're frustrated that we can't obey it 100% as we would like. That's the sentiment that Paul conveyed also in Romans chapter 7. We are the people who can pray in the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, not my will anymore. Your will. I'm now subject to you. I'm willing to line myself up under your word and under the authority of your word, Lord. 
because I'm so grateful for what you've done for me in sending your son to die for me. Friends, does any of us still find ourselves at war with God this morning? Perhaps you've seen today that your life is characterized by warfare with others, a love of the world, a love of yourself. And maybe you don't love Christ the way the Bible defines it. If that's true, then repent. Repent and believe the gospel, the good news. And here it is. For he made him, that's God made Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. A wonderful exchange. His life for ours. Full pardon Free for us, but so costly for him, if you will receive it. If you will receive it. And for the believer, I think it's important that we recognize this carnal mind. This carnal mind is always hostile to God, and there's still something of it in us because we are still, though we're not governed by the flesh, we have the flesh in us. This old mind still can rear its ugly head. Old patterns of thought are still there that need to be addressed with 2 Corinthians 10 theology, recognize those high walls that have maybe fortified you in lies for a long time and tear them down by the word of God. Ask the Lord that he would do this in you. We are not controlled by the mind of the flesh anymore. Thank God. We're now controlled by the mind of the spirit. And if that has happened to you, is there a greater reason to rejoice knowing this truth that you had no ability to liberate yourself from that condition? You were dead in sin, you were an enemy of God, you were at warfare with Him, and it was because God released you from that warfare. He made peace with you through the blood of His cross that you're able to rejoice in Him this morning. Um, I just want to share a little bit as we close from Psalm 21. That this was our corporate reading this morning. I love Psalm 21. Psalm 21 is a psalm of David, and really it's King David's uh, prayer of thanksgiving to the Lord for answering his request for victory in chapter 20. I would commend that to you to, to read. But what he says in chapter 21 is that the king, referring to himself in the third person, David, has joy in the Lord's strength. Listen to how this reads. The king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, and in your salvation, how greatly shall he rejoice. I was so blessed as I was looking at this this week. This word for salvation in verse 1, that word in the Hebrew is Yeshua. It's the word Joshua or Jesus. Listen to it now. The king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, and in your Jesus. How greatly shall he rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. What is this one desire that King David had? We talked about this this morning with regard to Paul and his one desire in Philippians chapter 3. What is David's one desire, the desire of his heart? The salvation of God, Yeshua. That's what he wants more than anything. You have blessed him. You meet him with the blessings of goodness. It's a picture of the Lord meeting with David as he's conqueror, coming back from battle victorious. You set a crown of pure gold upon his head. There's two things going on here. There's a a picture of coming back from a physical battle where the Lord has given victory over enemies, but there's also a spiritual understanding of salvation here. He's been liberated. We've been liberated from the power of sin. God is now setting a crown of pure gold. That's salvation, loved ones, on our heads. He's given us faith to believe in our minds, on our heads. He asked life from you and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. That's eternal life. That's salvation. His glory is great in your salvation. Honor and majesty you have placed upon him. You've made him most blessed forever. You've made him exceedingly glad with your presence. Do you see how many times David is acknowledging the Lord and his work? 
you have given, you have set, you have given, you, you have made him blessed. This is the work of the Lord. Salvation is all of the Lord. David is just recognizing that and he's basking in it. He's glorying in it. And then look what he says in verse eight, verse 8. Your hand will find all your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. You see, it's not just we who are at war with God, but God is at war with this mind of the flesh. God is at war with the mind of the flesh. You shall make them, those who are enemies, as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. Their offspring you shall destroy from the earth, and their descendants from among the sons of men. For they intended evil against you. Where? In their minds. In their hearts. For they devised a plot which they are not able to perform. I love that. God alone is sovereign. They may plan in their hearts evil against the Lord and against other people, but God is sovereign over that. Therefore, you will make them turn their back. You will make ready your arrows uh, on your string toward their faces. Here's a picture of an enemy of God walking away from him, and God is going to force him to turn back face to face with him so that he can point his arrow in their face and destroy them forever. Loved ones, is there anything more sober that you could possibly think of? God is against his enemies. This is what we've been delivered from. His smile is now upon us in Christ. Rejoice in him this morning and in the freedom you have in Christ to serve him with all your heart. Pour yourself out for him. Live for his glory and not your own. And as a byproduct of that, you will find your life is eminently satisfied. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in your word, in your truth, in your revelation of who you are. Thank you for giving us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to understand what we would not be able to understand on our own. Blessed are we. You have brought us near. You have, in fact, brought us and placed us into your Son, the Beloved, the one in whom is all your pleasure and delight. And because of that, we are now partakers of every spiritual blessing in Christ. Father, I pray that you would bless your people this morning. Encourage the downcast. Father, those who might be lifted up with pride, humble them, humble me. Help us, Lord, to all bow before you and to live our lives in gratitude for the work of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Thank you so much, Lord. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen.